As president, my highest and most solemn duty is the defense of our nation and its citizens. Last night at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. And he was a monster. And he's no longer a monster. He's dead. And that's a good thing for a lot of countries. And he was planning a very big attack and a very bad attack for us and other people. And we stopped him. And I don't think anybody can complain about it. Hello and welcome to Season 7 of The Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia. And each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross, and today we're sitting down with Ari Gassemian to talk about the death of Suleimani and its implications historically and in the modern day. Ari, could you tell us a little bit about who Suleimani was? So Major General Qasem Suleimani was the commander of the Quds Force in the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards Corps. He was one of the most important men in Iran. In, in large part because of the role of the guards in Iranian politics, society, economics, and their foreign policy, intelligence apparatus. So he was really at the center of many different aspects of Iranian policy, Iranian society. And he was also beyond that kind of like a folk hero almost to many Iranians. So killing him in the manner that the U.S. did was a big breach in what our policy had been and was a new stepping stone. Was he a dangerous individual? What does he mean symbolically? And what does his death mean symbolically for the Iranian people? Soleimani was born in the provinces of Iran. Um, He was born in a family where both his mother and his father were illiterate. For him to rise to the position he did was an inspiration especially more conservative, kind of nationalistic supporters of the regime. But even to non-hardliners, he was as a national figure. It's kind of hard to put it. We don't, we don't really have that kind of folk hero in the U.S. today that is like almost, almost universally known about and like liked like that. But it's, his life was extraordinary in that regard. Work as commander of the Quds Force he was instrumental to most of the Iranian regime's foreign policy. Most of the things we think of today as like Iran being kind of in the specter in the American public conversation is almost exclusively things that were under his command. So the Quds Force is part of the, the Revolutionary Guard, which has all kinds of aspects. But there was an elite like paramilitary unit that was involved in the entire enterprise of exporting revolution among the Middle East, of helping Hamas and Hezbollah, all their activities in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, all of those fall under the Quds Force. That during the Iraq War, General Petraeus, who was in charge of the American forces, had lobbied the Iraqi government to expel the Iranian ambassador because he was an intelligence officer for the guard. And Apparently, afterwards, Petraeus gets a call on his cell phone from Soleimani, and Soleimani tells him, you may have expelled this ambassador, but his successor will be a Quds Force intelligence officer, and his successor will be an intelligence officer, and just tells him that, like, it's that, that level of enmeshment where 
the Iranian kind of regime that we want to counter in these milieu is all channeled through kind of his sphere of foreign policy and influence. So we're talking about him now, obviously, because of the order to um, kill him on January 3rd. Could you go into a little bit more what went into that decision-making process and what like just happened in our recent history? How it's been reported in the media is that in response to kind of more aggressive Iranian actions in the region, some uh, policymakers on the National Security uh, Council had given the president, President Trump, three kind of options. Um, and in kind of where one was a little bit more, you know, you can uh, issue a statement. One was a little bit more uh, a medium. You can take this action and this action. And then the most extreme, which they kind of put in as an extreme so that he would choose the middle option was, oh, and you can kill Soleimani. Um, and when it was put in, the policymakers, the, the civil servants didn't expect that he would take that option. And he ended up uh, saying, do it. Um, and kind of reporting differs. Some say that initially he had went for a different option and then at the 11th hour changed his mind. So they had to find him on satellite again and get a drone strike. A lot of that is uh, classified. So just from public reporting, we won't know exactly what happened for a long time. But uh, basically, and that's the gist of it. And the, a drone strike was ordered. And the next day or later that day, I guess, the president went on TV and gave a justification for why he said that U.S. forces have killed Qasem Soleimani and uh, told the world, basically. So a drone strike represents a change in our policy towards Iran, I would say. Do you agree? For sure, yeah. So taking that kind of step, it, it it's pretty drastic, and I think you could probably speak better to its you know, implications for our relations with Iran and how it's different from how we've been dealing with them in the past. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so just kind of to put, to put this in context first, one of the, the basic kind of foundational element of the international system of international relations in the 20th and 21st century is kind of created after World War One, World War II, in that area where the idea that like states interact with each other in a kind of free and equal basis, that non-aggression in the international like setting, that we shouldn't just be in this kind of like international anarchy that like that is a bad thing. That whole system was kind of like we turned the page a lot on that, not just in our relations with Iran, which has been kind of frosty and strained, not, we obviously haven't had official relations with Iran since the uh, hostage crisis in 1979-1980, but this was the first time that there were open hostilities on purpose between the two nations directly. The reason that we should care about this, that we should pay attention, is that this is the action that the president took using a drone strike on a senior official of a country whom we are adversarial with, but not at war with, should frighten us all. As U.S. citizens, this action was taken in all of our names. There's moral and practical implications. It means that we're a country that is starting a war, taking acts of war unprovoked. And it has practical implications because it means that it puts us in a war posture there's a chance that we get drafted. You could get drafted too now. 
So we should all pay attention kind of for these reasons. If that is an action that us as American citizens would like to take, is there historical precedent for us kind of unilaterally taking out a general? Obviously not this. Like this, no, this is unprecedented. We've never taken out an official of another country when we weren't at war. We've never done it publicly, of course. Maybe the intelligence services have done it and we don't know about it, so we can't say with complete certainty. But no, this is, it's never been that we do this and then the president goes in front of the flag and says, we killed so-and-so in peacetime. In wartime, it's happened where, uh, an example that's used a lot is during World War II, FDR, President Roosevelt, had told the uh, Army Air Forces that we want to kill Yamamoto, like who's the, the Japanese um, Minister of Defense, I believe, and he was kind of masterminded a lot of, um, I think it was Pearl Harbor, the other things that we, we wanted to take him out. And we specifically said, find his plane, shoot it. And we did. But that was during wartime. And it wasn't even publicized that we targeted him until many years later. So that's interesting that there is precedent during wartime, but not during peacetime, and that the actions taken today set new precedents. Can you speak a little bit more now to how leaders present these gigantic decisions before the media to kind of sway public opinion towards themselves? Yeah, so this is this is really cool because we can kind of situate this in a larger kind of like canon almost that goes back to like IR students who have read uh, Pericles and like Thucydides where he's talking about this is why this is who we are as Athenians kind of this oration during war is a is a big trope Gettysburg address by Lincoln kind of things like that that really marshal why the country is doing things because like military actions are always almost like the essence of like national values, the national interests. So that's why it's really interesting and important when leaders take this opportunity because it's, it's almost like a distilled essence of what we stand for, quote unquote. Um, and which is why it's really disappointing kind of to hear what the president said on this. Um, there were a lot of echoes to how President Bush described the need to end Iraq, to start the Iraq war in 2003. There was the idea that our our enemy, Soleimani or Saddam Hussein, in Bush's case, killed civilians, that he gave aid and comfort to terrorists, the idea that the U.S. will not live at the mercy of an outlaw or at an outlaw regime, that this is kind of preemptive self-defense, almost, that uh, Trump said Soleimani was planning imminent and sinister attacks on the United States, that we caught him red-handed the same way that they said Saddam had WMDs that we don't want to live in fear instead of having firefighters in the United States, the implication that we would be nuked. We want to just stop this from happening with maximum force. This was kind of the like texture of Trump's address, in my opinion, the idea that we're going to war for peace. That's interesting. And I just wanted to add here that, you know, the rhetoric comes kind of after action a little bit here. And that in the public sphere, I think it's important for us to be having conversations of if we want to be in the position to be making preemptive decisions. I mean, of course, we don't want to, you know, quote unquote, wait around and be sitting ducks for an attack, but we also don't want to be provoking unnecessary tension. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I think you would make a great senator, because from both parties, um, senators have been sponsoring a bill to kind of bring 
that power back to the Congress, where it was like this decision was almost exclusively made by the executive branch. There wasn't much public discussion about should we go to war with Iran? Should we consider a strike? Because the the actions that Trump used as the kind of the immediate uh, precursor, the immediate cause of Belli was there were kind of some mobs outside uh, U.S. embassies, I think, in one or two countries, which were obviously reported on in U.S. media, but not there wasn't a national conversation to the degree that would seem to merit this action. So it kind of it caught a lot of Americans off guard. Typically in U.S. history, when presidents want to take a large action like that, they go and ask Congress. But we've seen um, a shift throughout our lifetimes that instead um, presidents take action first and ask Congress later. Can you speak a little bit to the historical change and its relation with us taking immense actions like that that could imply war? The classic kind of case we go to is World War II, right? It was the last time kind of Congress declared war on another country. Um, the isn't the last time the last country the U.S. declared war on was actually Romania because we weren't sure if the declaration of war that Congress had passed against Germany and Japan and their allies covered that. So just as a technicality, just to make sure we were covered, Congress went and passed the law. And right now, it's kind of presidents take oh, okay, this comma means we might be able to do it, send it, do it. Um, so it's kind of, it shows really how far we've come. But to answer your question kind of more spot on, the, the best example I think of there is President Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor said that since that unprovoked attack on the United States, a state of war has existed, which as a linguistic element, is kind of interesting because it doesn't say that they are declaring war. The United States did not declare war. Rather, they're arguing what they said, what Congress said, which is obviously part rhetoric, but as, as the words that were passed, I think it's meaningful. They were saying that we do not declare war. Rather, because this was thrust upon us, we have no choice but to declare that the war that was put upon us. Whereas now, kind of, what the president is doing is saying, not only do we make no pretense that a state of war exists, we are not declaring war, we're actually just taking actions, acts of war, without even kind of the moral grounding of a war, kind of where it's like, war is obviously bad and we don't want to have wars, but actions taken during wartime have a moral significance that they wouldn't otherwise. Like it's not murder if you kill somebody in wartime because it's, it's war, it's how it goes. And that's not what we're doing. So kind of just morally, it's almost puts us in an awkward position to say the least. So there's been an evolution of how presidents present their actions before the press. But now in the modern day, with everyone having great access to internet, and we can have an online discussion about it. How have you seen the public responding to these actions? We move on and take everything in stride. And I think that's in part what makes kind of actions like this possible. And I guess as in the, year, in the years that go by where our generation will probably almost inevitably at some point become the political power base in this country and around the world, is what does that mean for policymakers? Can 
actions can just kind of be him and people just go with it. Um, it it's kind of bleak politically, but at the same time, it's, it caused for hope because it's everybody or not everybody, like we shouldn't again overgeneralize, but you have a huge segment of the population that becomes incredibly well informed and up to the minute on everything going on or a lot of things going on. But it's that energy we channel into like jokes and stuff into, you know, learning more about things, which is I guess might change as we get older or we might just stop checking our phones. Who knows? Maybe the world has been completely distracted though by other news and that it we just kind of take everything yeah, in stride. Yeah, I mean we have we have really not twenty twenty has been a very fast year in terms of news, but the biggest implication that kind of comes to me is that it's gonna be a lot more difficult for the US to have kind of moral political authority in world affairs because we've set the precedent that you can do this in this stance and it, 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 it has stood for better or for worse. It's the way of the world really. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer, and thank you to Ari for bringing us this week's story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. Uh, so as many of you may have noticed, this is not a typical Global Inquirer episode. Maybe you picked up by the audio quality, perhaps, but we are currently recording remotely since we are based out of the University of Virginia. And many universities in the United States have sent students home due to the outbreak of COVID-19. This just means for us that we will be recording remotely and hopefully we won't have to delay any episodes, but we're working with what we have and working very diligently with the help of all of our researchers here to continue to bring you episodes throughout this tumultuous time. Thank you for continuing to listen to The Global Inquirer. This is a passion project coming from all of us, and we appreciate the support of every single one of our listeners. And we're trying our best to continue this despite all of the new challenges that Recording Remotely presents. So please continue to listen to our new episodes, and we'll continue to work as best we can on schedule with the challenges that we have. Mm -hmm.